So this is, I've given a lot of talks at Pain Week over the last several years, probably for the last seven years or so. And this talk is actually probably one of the more intimate talks that I'll be giving because it's not something that's wildly well known. Um, how many of you have dealt with or treated patients with central post-stroke pain? <laughs> so, you can, so that's obviously why the majority of you are here. How many of you have had wild success taking care of patients with central post-stroke pain? They're, they're not a lot, but they're probably some of the worst patients to help uh, control pain with. They're very difficult. And so my hope with you today is to try to talk a little bit about um, a, a potentially different way of looking at these patients. I'll talk about that at the very end. It was a paper that Simone Hartunian and I published in Pain a couple of months ago. <clears throat> but what I'm going to start off with is a little bit about the history. First of all, disclosures, none. I'm in academics. Um, and then, uh, not that, to say that that's a reason why you don't have any, but um, the learning objectives for this course is I want you to understand the leading causes of pain after stroke. Notice I didn't say central pain. Right, Because that's one of the problems after stroke is that there's a number of reasons why people may have pain after a stroke, and it's not always central post-stroke pain. And so I just want to talk briefly a little bit about what are the other types of pain syndromes that can occur after stroke. I want to review the diagnostic criteria for central post-stroke pain. It's not just sort of a lot of hand-waving. There is some mandatory criteria that patients need to show in order for you to actually diagnose them with central post-stroke pain. And then there is some ancillary criteria that we can talk about as well. I'm going to go over some of the proposed mechanisms for central post-stroke pain. Now, especially after lunch, you guys might be not feeling quite up to par with mechanistic approaches. So I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But what I do want to talk about is some of the proposed mechanisms because when we talk about how to treat patients, whether it's medically or non-medically, which I'm going to talk about at the end, Knowing a little bit about those mechanisms is going to help you understand why we use some of the medications that we use for these patients. And then it'll also kind of elucidate for you why the paper that I'm going to talk about at the end is so kind of revolutionary. It was accompanied by an editorial in pain because it's, it's starting to upend the way we think of this central uh, post-stroke pain. So I'll talk a little bit about epidemiology. I'll talk about the clinical presentation proposed mechanisms, and management. So what are the common problems or pain syndromes that can occur with patients after a stroke? Well, first of all, when we talk about central neuropathic pain, there are multiple reasons why people can develop central neuropathic pain. We always think about ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, right? But it could also be due to multiple sclerosis. Multiple sclerosis causes central neuropathic pain. And some of the medications that we talk about when we talk about treating patients with central post-stroke pain may, in fact, help patients with multiple sclerosis. There's a lot of overlap. We also talk about spinal cord injury, syringomyelia, vascular malformations can compress on the spinal cord and can cause central neuropathic pain. Infections, of course, traumatic brain injury. And then there's this question about whether or not Parkinson's disease has a central neuropathic component when it comes to their pain phenomenon. And that's not something that I'm going to be talking about very heavily here, but it's something to think about. So how much of this is a problem? Every year, half a million people in the United States have a first stroke. 
That's incredible. Half a million, just in the United States. And 200,000 people have a recurrent stroke. And it turns out when you have mechanistic pain after a, a stroke, it might not necessarily happen after the first stroke. After a second stroke is when they might start having pain. What's even further interesting, I don't know how many of you have seen this happen, I have, a patient has a stroke, develops central post-stroke pain, gets a second stroke, their pain goes away. Have you seen that? It's pretty incredible, it's very rare, but it can happen. 80% of strokes are actually ischemic, either thrombotic or embolic in origin. Five million people in the United States who have had a stroke are living in a community setting. And of those five million, 1.1 million have limitations in their daily functioning or their ability to perform activities of daily living. This is a major problem in the United States. 100,000 people have stroke as their primary diagnosis living in a home health care facility. Now, the thing about this is that pain is actually quite common in patients who have a stroke. It can be as high as 39 to 55% of patients, almost half of patients after a stroke will say that they have some form of pain. But it's not all central post-stroke pain. There are four leading causes. There's, there's really four. I mean, there's a lot, but the major four are headaches, shoulder pain, spasticity, and central post-stroke pain. And in the real world, do you really think that you can pigeonhole or silo people into one of those four? Clearly not, right? So patients can have combinations, and that's what makes the diagnosis of central post-stroke pain so difficult, because it's not always very clear. It's one of those things that, do they have central post-stroke pain? Is it really maybe a form of spasticity and shoulder pain that's causing this, or is this really central post-stroke pain? We don't know. But that's why a lot of these things could be missed, so there could be an under-reporting of these, of these patients. But the thing about central post-stroke pain as a neuropathic pain disorder is that it, and this idea of being 25% of all post-stroke pain cases is a little heavy-handed. It was published in 1995. The reality is, and again, that's because of that overlapping segment that I was talking about, but if you want to look at pure central post-stroke pain, we would say that about 8 to 10% of patients after a stroke will have pure central post-stroke pain. So about 1 out of every 10. Again, that's why this is more of an intimate problem, because when they show up to your office, it's not something that you see commonly, right? You're not seeing a lot of these patients. Even the next lecture that I'm going to give about CRPS, I would say that more people have, at least those who attend this conference, I'd like to think, have more information about CRPS than central post-stroke pain. Like, what is this? This isn't, nah, it's not that common. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. So when we talk about these four segments, shoulder pain, so outside of musculoskeletal pain, Shoulder pain is actually the most common problem that patients after a stroke will, will complain of. And, and this is when I, when I talk about most common, I'm talking about something on the order of 20%. One out of every five patients are going to complain of shoulder pain. 40% of patients will describe some form of musculoskeletal pain. Okay? Now, it could be shoulder pain, but it could also be what? Spasticity, right? Painful spasticity occurs in as much as 7% of the patients who have uh, a, a stroke. And what do we usually use for these types of patients? Does anyone know? Well, 
Lyrica has more of a neuropathic quality to it, right? So we'll talk about it for central posturing. But for spasticity, what's that go-to thing that we think about? Baclofen, right? So we talk about baclofen. And in fact, for those patients who have really painful spasticity, we think about it even in terms of like those cerebral palsy patients, right? Who are really severe. What do we do? We could consider what? If baclofen's helpful, but they can't tolerate it because they need higher doses, they think about an intrathecal baclofen pump, right? So some of these patients end up on intrathecal baclofen. What's interesting about baclofen, and the reason why I'm kind of going into baclofen now is because I really don't talk about it as much when I talk about the um, other medications, and that's because this is more of a spasticity type issue medication. But the thing about baclofen is that there are some pieces of literature out there that suggest that baclofen has neuropathic qualities to it. So those studies came out of trigeminal neuralgia patients who were treated with baclofen. And in fact, you would think that patients with trigeminal neuralgia should have no benefit from baclofen, but in fact, those patients got quite a bit of, of relief with baclofen. And in fact, further studies did show that there is some neuropathic pain qualities to the use of baclofen. And so in the pain management world, we like baclofen because I don't know how many of you remember what receptor it works on. GABA-B, yep. So GABA-B, B for baclofen, not really, but that's a way to remember it. So GABA-B, it can definitely help patients with neuropathic pain qualities. So keep that in mind in the back pocket when you're treating these patients, okay? And then, of course, headache, uh, headache and central post-stroke pain, again, about equal incidence, 8 to 10% of patients. So when did this all start coming to light? Well, the first introduction of it was in 1891, so it's been pretty pretty long time ago by Edinger, but it was really not until this seminal paper that was published in 1906 by the Jarin and Roussy when they looked at eight patients. And they published this famous paper called Le Syndrome Thalamique because they looked at eight patients that developed strokes in, their in the uh, optic thalamus. Excuse me. And in the optic thalamus, these eight patients had what they described as severe lancinating uh, neuropathic pain that could not be alleviated by any kind of analgesia that they had at the time. It was unrelenting. And of those eight patients, three of them, after they passed, had pathological analysis that showed that they had lesions in the thalamus. So it turns out that this sort of went along, and then, then several years later, 1911, Hedden Holmes published this paper describing not just this this severe neuropathic pain that was already described by Rusi, but they ended up describing these sensory deficits that were also occurring in these patients. And then they tied them in with pain errors, about 24 patients. So they started to get this realization that this is becoming a lot more common than they thought. And then in 1938, Riddock published a paper where he found that this wasn't just happening in thalamic stroke patients, but was happening in patients that had strokes outside of the thalamus. So what's going on there? It was a really kind of novel thing that they were looking at. When does this happen after a stroke? When do patients develop this kind of pain? A lot of us think that this happens right afterwards, that it's just like an event, like surgery. It's like surgical pain, and that's not necessarily true. There's a variable time course that this can occur with. It can, it can develop immediately after a stroke, but in fact, the onset can be delayed. And in fact, there's prospective study at 16 patients with CPSP that occurred within the first month after stroke, 
It can occur within one in six months, as it did in this study in three patients. It can even occur after six months. And in fact, even up to a year. And so some people get bewildered, right? Because the stroke occurred, it's been a year, you might be managing these patients, and then they start developing pain. And central post-stroke pain is not necessarily at the forefront of your mind. And yes, it is a diagnosis of exclusion. And we're going to talk a little bit about that when it comes to the diagnostic criteria. But it's important to keep this in mind that with these patients, they're walking on a, a, a thin line and that you need to keep this differential diagnosis, part of your differential diagnosis. So any later onset of pain should be prompted by a, a very careful examination for other causes, specifically spasticity or shoulder pain, or even a new stroke. And that's something to think about. But the other thing to notice is that this is a gradual onset of pain. It's not something that just happens with massive force, which is what a lot of us like to think, but it's this slow, insidious onset that just becomes unrelenting for our patients. And it's very similar to other central neuropathic pain states, namely multiple sclerosis, right? Multiple sclerosis doesn't just happen with a massive attack, right? It happens with this slow, insidious onset that just keeps gnawing away at our patients. And this is what's happening with central post-stroke pain. So what is the diagnostic criteria for central post-stroke pain? And there are some mandatory criteria. Number one, the pain needs to be within an area of the body that corresponds to the lesion of the central nervous system. Number two, there has to be a history suggestive of a stroke. Easy enough, right? But you'd be surprised that that some people don't necessarily have a true diagnosis of stroke through imaging before making this diagnosis. And so that leads us to number three, that there has to be confirmation of a CNS lesion by imaging or by negative or positive sensory signs that are confined to that area that corresponds to the lesion. Make sense? And then number four, again, I talked about being a diagnosis of Exclusion, right? So other causes of pain, such as nociceptive or peripheral neuropathic pain, need to be excluded, or at least highly unlikely. Those are the mandatory criteria to diagnose people with central post-stroke pain. Now, there are some supportive criteria. For example, that there's no relationship to movement or inflammation or local tissue damage, um, that they can describe these things as being burning or painfully cold, electric shocks, allodynia or dysesthesia to, to light touch or cold, those things are supportive, but they're not part of the diagnostic mandatory diagnostic criteria, okay? And, oh, by the way, hopefully uh, this isn't going to take the full 50 minutes, so we'll leave some rooms for, room for question and answers at the end. So this is a good example of an image of a patient who has a thalamic infarct. This is a left thalamic infarct. You can see this on the two, T2 flare MR image. And then you can see this in the coronal T2 image on the right here. Um, and this is a posterolateral thalamic location of the infarct. And so this is that sort of the definitive diagnosing by, via imaging that this patient had a stroke and is part of your diagnostic criteria for central post-stroke pain. Well, it's funny, you know, when we talk about stroke and we talk about, or when we talk about pain, I don't know how many of you um, were at the Sean Mackey talk about biomarkers of pain. But, um, you know, whenever we talk about pain, we're always trying to figure out what are the validated measures to use as a painometer. And when it comes to central post-stroke pain, 
The answer is the standard VAS or NRS scale. There isn't a specific uh, scale for central post-stroke pain. But when it comes to being a little nuanced in treating these patients, we can use something called quantitative sensory testing. How many of you are familiar with QST? Not that many. It's mostly an area of research, and that's what we use in our paper. I'm going to describe a little bit about that. So what quantitative sensory testing is, it's been used to document these sensory findings like allodynia or hyperalgesia. And what it does is there's this graded physiological stimulus. So what we do is we take the patient, we use the unaffected arm first, right? So we get a baseline. So we can see how do they respond in the unaffected extremity to thermal stimulus, heat or cold. Then we also check pressure, von Frey filaments, for example, and then pinprick. And then we go to vibration stimulus. And then we go to the affected extremity, and then we see how their pain thresholds are now suddenly completely different, right? Much lower, and they're uh, exhibiting pain to these, uh, these different modalities at much lower degrees, right? And that way, we can also help elucidate treatment, right? If they're doing better, is the treatment affecting their sensory thresholds? So when we talk about pain, and I don't have this slide up here, in chronic pain, what happens to our patients? It doesn't have to be central post-stroke pain, right? So how many of you are familiar with the pain curve, right? So you've got a stimulus on the x-axis, right? And then you've got, on the y-axis, your pain score, right? Zero to 10. And you've got this curve. It looks just like the hemoglobin dissociation curve, okay? What happens to patients in chronic pain? What happens to that curve? It shifts to the left, right? And that's the definition of two important terms. What? Allodynia and hyperalgesia. Those two terms, and this is so important for those of you who are going through pain week, those two terms are used interchangeably, and that's wrong. Okay? Allodynia is not hyperalgesia, and vice versa. What's the difference? So if you took that curve, the original curve, the non-shifted curve, that patient who you're putting a stimulus would normally report a 0 out of 10 pain, correct? Now you've shifted it to the left. So that stimulus that was normally a zero is now like a four or a five out of 10. That's allodynia. That was a normally non-painful stimulus that is now what? Painful. It's now painful. Hyperalgesia is when you took that normal, that normal curve, you gave them a stimulus, like on our QST testing, and they report <clears throat> a two out of 10 pain. So like on the unaffected extremity, they say this is a 2 out of 10. That pinprick is not pleasant, right? It's not non-painful. But I'll report it as a 2 out of 10. But then you've shifted that curve to the left. So when it's a 2 out of 10 on a normal patient or a normal extremity, it's now reported as a 10 out of 10, right? That's hyperalgesia. Don't use those terms interchangeably. Allodynia and hyperalgesia are two distinct phenomena that are very much based off of the leftward shift of the pain curve. And I say this now because I just talked about quantitative sensory testing, so that's really important for you guys to understand. So how do people describe the painful clinical characteristics of this condition? 
Pain can be either spontaneous or evoked. Pain can be, at least in the spontaneous pain, it's very common. It's reported in 85% of patients. And on average, it's rated a 3 to 6 out of 10. Now, obviously, there's going to be outliers. There's going to be people who will say it's an 8 to 10 out of 10. And there are going to be people who don't necessarily are that necessarily affected by it. But it turns out that whether or not the thalamus is involved does not necessarily tell you how much of a pain the central post-stroke phenomenon is going to be. So extrathalamic strokes can be just as painful as thalamic strokes. And the intensity could be increased by a, an external stimulus. They describe it, at least continuous pain, as burning, aching, pricking, freezing, and especially this term here, squeezing. How many of you have taken care of patients have had them describe it as a vice, right? It feels like somebody's put a vice on their extremity and that it's unrelenting. And then uh, intermittent pain is described as lacerating or shooting. And it can definitely reduce the quality of life. It can compromise rehabilitation. It interferes with sleep. I've had one patient self-mutilate himself over this pain. And it can definitely be a painful syndrome that we have such a limited understanding of and that our, our current treatment mechanistic approach is just not that robust that it can cause suicide in these patients. And the reason why I bring this up is because... If you are treating these patients and they're not doing well and you don't identify anxiety and depression and all these other characteristics, you're doing a disservice to your patients. You can't necessarily treat patients in isolation. And so it's so important to get pain psychologists involved in the care of these patients because it's not just affecting the patient, but what else is it affecting? Their families, right? It's affecting their families, their spouses, their marriages, their work, their self-confidence, right? So it's so important not necessarily to uh, separate yourself from uh, treating that. So how do they describe it? can be uh, in a small area, for example, the hand, or it could be in a very large area, an entire side of the body, like in this example. Large areas are most commonly affected with or without involvement of the trunk or face. So the trunk is usually not involved. In patients who have a lateral medullary infarction, you're going to get this interesting involvement where you'll have facial pain on one side, and then you'll have hemibody pain on the contralateral side, right? And then in patients who have thalamic lesions, you'll just have hemibody pain, right? You won't necessarily have facial, associated facial pain. So bear with me. I have five mechanisms. I'm not going to go crazy on you, okay? I know this is a little bit heavy-handed right now in the afternoon after lunch. But I just want to go through these really briefly so you understand what our understanding of right now is and why, when I talk about this article at the very end, the study that we published, this is going to turn things on their head, okay? So... The first mechanism is, and, and the theme that I want you to see in all these mechanisms, okay, is it has to do with the spinothalamic tract, right? So the spinothalamic tract is the associated afferent input and going into the central nervous system. And I, I'm going I'm to describe a little bit at the end about why this is important. So you got a stroke. Now you've got loss of the spinothalamic tract. 
So you've got reduced activity. That's what, so when you look at these diagrams, blue means reduced activity, red means up, in, so it's heat. It's like upward in, uh, activity. So you've got a reduction in your spinothalamic tract. So now the lateral thalamus is firing a lot more to the medial thalamus because of this dysregulation, and you get pain. So that's one mechanism, okay? Next mechanism. It's called the thermosensory disinhibition theory. It sounds like something out of the Big Bang Theory, like, a, a, like an episode of the Big Bang Theory. The thermosensory disinhibition theory. So what that entails is this, that you get this spinothalamic lesion, right? So this, or you should say you have this lesion, now you have the spinothalamic tract, and now what essentially happens is reduced activity all the way up into the insula. And I don't know if you remember, if you went to the talk by, um, by Sean Mackey, you'll see that the insula is definitely a gateway to the thalamus, right? And in this theory, you have this loss of uh, uh, inhibition to the insula, which then drives increased activity to the periaqueductal gray, to the medial thalamus, and then therefore to the anterior cingulate cortex. So that's the next theory. This one is called uh, the neospinothalamic tract. So basically, the spinothalamic tract is now not functioning well. So what essentially happens is you get this loss of, of activity down the neospinothalamic, the lateral spinothalamic tract, basically. And when that happens, if you don't have a lot going in the lateral, you're going to have a lot more going in the medial. And the medial is going to project to the medial thalamus, which is going to be driving pain. Okay? Two more. This one's pretty simple. You get deafferentation. So the spinothalamic tract, it's not functioning. So you get deafferentation of this pathway, so it just causes increased driving up into the thalamus. So what's essentially happening here, and this is important, because we're going to talk about gabapentin. And how does gabapentin work? On what receptor? No. Calcium. Very good. It's a misnomer. You think gabapentin, so you think GABA. It's actually calcium. And the reason why that's important is because in this theory, we think that it, the thalamus is causing this hyperactive bursting by low threshold calcium spikes. So calcium is driving this. So that's why you give a calcium channel blocker and it helps quiet this down. And that's essentially what we think about with gabapentin or pregabalin. And last but not least is what we call the dynamic reverberation theory. Everything is yin and yang. So essentially, if the spinothalamic tract is not going to the thalamus, there's this interplay that goes between the thalamus and the cortex. They keep talking to each other. There's communication. And essentially, if you drive the thalamus up, it's going to go to the cortex, and it's going to go back and forth, and you're going to get this disinhibition reverberation that happens between the cortex and the thalamus. So those are the five mechanisms that we currently think of when we talk about central post-stroke pain. It's, it's not easy. It's difficult. But knowing this, I'm going to explain a little bit about the treatments. Okay? Yeah. So the question is, in these patients who, have, who present with facial pain on one side and then hemibody pain on the opposite, why does that occur? How can we fit this into one of those theories? And that's because the lesion is occurring where? In the lateral medullary region. And because of that, you have the crossing of fibers that are going to the face in the ipsilateral portion versus the contralateral portion of the hemibody. 
And so what's essentially happening is it could still fit in any of those five examples because that, that type of lesion is still able to drive up processing to the thalamus, right? Because the medulla is proximal to the thalamus. So anything that's proximal to the thalamus may drive um, activation to the medial thalamus. So you're thinking about cort cortical reorganization, and that's a little different, right? Because that's the, so that, which he's asking about the homunculus, really drives in the dynamic reverberation theory, right? Because it's this talking interplay between the cortex and the thalamus that's going back and forth. Good. Okay, what are the treatments? We're going to talk a little bit about antidepressants, anticonvulsants, antiarrhythmics. Opioids are considered second-line uh, um, medications, intrathecal baclofen we talked about, rehab techniques, and then we'll talk a little bit about sort of some of the invasive things. I don't know how familiar you are with some of this stuff, but we'll talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about antidepressants. How many of you use antidepressants for pain? Good. So you're not, you're not unfamiliar with this. TCAs are considered first-line drugs for central post-stroke pain. Of these, of all of the antidepressants, amitriptyline is the one that has shown the most consistent and efficacious benefit to patients with central post-stroke pain. And the dose is 75 milligrams. Now, if you look at this, this dose is lower than the dose used to treat depression, right? So as you know, because you guys use this, we're not giving antidepressants to patients in pain to help with their depression, right? It's independent of... Uh, antidepressant effects, okay? And even at the dose that we're talking about, 75 milligrams is way lower than what people would use this drug for for depression, right? Those are usually at 150 to 225 milligram doses. They do get mild to moderate side effects. What are those side effects? The biggest one is sleepiness and lethargy. So you know what's amazing? Use the side effect to your benefit. Give it to them at night, exactly. So we oftentimes give these medications to patients at night, an hour or two before they go to bed. And in fact, those patients where the pain is so unrelenting that they can't sleep, they may at least even get some benefit of sleep. And they'll come back to you and tell me, at least I can sleep better, doctor. And the interesting thing is this. Amitriptyline, and most of these TCAs in general, they don't cause sleep that is what we would say a Band-Aid is, right? So I'm talking about things like Lunesta, right? It's not that kind of sleep aid, it actually causes architecturally sound REM sleep. And in fact, internal medicine physicians are increasingly turning towards even lower doses of nortriptyline and amitriptyline to treat patients with insomnia, right? The question is, is this immediate or does this take some time for it to take effect? Usually we treat these patients with a low dose because we don't want to hit them with a semi, right? Because we don't want them to take it at night and then have, feel hungover in the morning. So we usually start at 25 milligrams, and they may get some benefit, but they might not. But we want them to get introduced to that dose, so we make sure that they don't get significant side effects. A week later, we up it to 50. A week later, we up it up to 75. And so it may take up to 75 milligrams for them to start seeing that effect. So I would usually say within one to four weeks that it should start noticing an effect, especially because we're titrating up on the dose. We can use other tricyclic antidepressants, nortriptyline, imipramine, disipramine. 
Um, we also can use SNRIs. SNRIs are considered second-line agents. But SSRIs have shown to be of no benefit in this patient population. What about anticonvulsants? So gabapentin and pregabalin are actually very well documented with central neuropathic pain syndromes. Now, it's important to understand something about pregabalin. It's, very, it's, it's clinically significant in the treatment of patients with central neuropathic pain, but there are side effects, right? We know that it can cause dizziness, it can cause lethargy, it can cause significant weight gain. And I don't know how many of you have had patients who come back to you with just severe edema all over, and it's, just, it's really scary when you first see it. And it actually can, and it can exacerbate depression. And this is important to understand. So that some patients, after initiation of, of anticonvulsants, whether it's gabapentin or pregabalin, they'll come back to your office and they'll report significant depression or depressive symptoms and even some suicidality. And you might think that this is just a factor of what? Of their pain state, right? When in fact, it's actually a problem of that medication. You need to be very aware of that. And in fact, there are some... some um, cases that uh, patients committed suicide as a result of these medications and that the prescriber was held accountable for it. So it's very important to keep that in mind. Now, we talk about anticonvulsants and we talked about how it's this calcium channel activation that we're, that we're seeing as one of the theories, and that's why this can be very beneficial in our patients. When we talk about Lyrica or pregabalin, it's important to understand that whenever we talk about medications, we talk about the number needed to treat and the number needed to harm, right? And that's that window of opportunity when we talk about uh, medication management. And it can be very dose-dependent. So pregabalin, when we talk about number needed to treat and number needed to harm, that window is very large at 300 milligrams. It's good, okay? But as you up the dose and you go up to 600 milligrams a day, that window becomes much narrower, and it's important to understand that, that the side effects leading to discontinuation of the drug become much more prevalent at higher doses. So keep that in mind as you're treating these patients. So if you're getting to 300 milligrams, I don't normally go up higher than that because the benefits that you're going to see at a, a dose higher than 300 milligrams is not going to be that significant to warrant the side effect that they're going to start noticing at those higher doses. That's when you start moving on to more other... like ancillary medications, right? So you're going to start another medication along board that. Does that make sense? Okay. Interesting, lamotrigine monotherapy has been found to be moderately effective in this patient population. And lamotrigine is one of those medications as pain physicians that we don't normally like to resort to. And the reason why is because of some of the side effects. And because we also like to think of lamotrigine as sort of like third, fourth, fifth line therapy for these patients. But in central post-stroke pain, lamotrigine has been shown in randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials. Now, remind me, these are low sample populations, right, 27. But again, it's so hard to find patients that fit that narrow central post-stroke pain diagnosis. And it's, it's actually very well tolerated. The biggest thing is that mild rash can be a problem. But... You have to remember, if you're going to use Lamotrigine, the two big culprits that you need to be aware of are Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis, right? So if a patient starts reporting rash, you need to be very aware of where this could go. And then you might need to discontinue that medication sooner rather than later. So just keep that in mind if you're using Lamotrigine. Um, okay. 
Now, I want to talk about carbamazepine briefly. When you say carbamazepine, you think, say it with me, trigeminal neuralgia. Excellent. It's like those, like, you know those like keywords for the boards, right? You just, you hear trigeminal neuralgia, you think carbamazepine and vice versa, okay? So when we talk about um, central post-stroke pain, sometimes we wonder if trigeminal neuralgia is involved, right? And we like to think, especially in patients who have facial pain after a stroke, we want carbamazepine to work. We want them to fit into that keyhole. And the answer is not very well. So carbamazepine for central post-stroke pain has not been shown to be that effective in studies where they compared carbamazepine to amitriptyline to placebo. So just keep that in mind, that as much as we want it to work, it's not actually that great. And in fact, can cause ataxia, rash, hyponatremia, bone marrow dysfunction, hepatic dysfunction. So if you even have a patient on trigeminal neuralgia that you're going to start this medication on, be aware of the side effects. Overall, it's limited. How about opioids? That's the big elephant in the room, especially nowadays. Generally considered ineffective in central post-stroke pain. However, there's a study that showed that morphine can alter significant aspects of pain perception, especially allodynia and thermal thresholds. And people don't realize that about morphine. And it turns out that morphine, or opioids in general, do have some neuropathic pain uh, medication qualities to it. It does affect potassium channel. It does affect... Uh, postsynaptic uh, calcium channels as well. And in one study, morphine appeared to be effective in reducing central post-stroke pain because it reduced nociceptive pain and psychogenic influence. So remember, that stuff plays a role when we're talking about these types of medications. However, this is what's really interesting. So why do we think that opioids are generally ineffective? And it's because of this. that Other investigators reported a loss or an inactivation of opioid receptors in the area of the stroke. It's almost like a deafferentation. And so there's a loss of opioid receptors or even ineffectiveness of the receptor at the site. So it actually explains the low efficacy of opioids because you need higher doses of opioids for it to be effective. And before you get any benefit on higher doses of opioids in these patients, you're going to get side effects. So become ineffective. Make sense? All right. So <clears throat> there are some... So, so, okay, you've tried these medications. Hopefully they're beneficial. What if they're not? There are some studies that looked at intravenous medications for those patients that are recalcitrant to pain relief. Namely, the three IV medications that I'm going to talk about are ketamine, propofol, and lidocaine. Now, here's what's interesting. I'm going to talk with lidocaine. And, and this is in your slide deck, so I know it might not necessarily... It's kind of busy... But I'm just going to briefly talk about some of these things. Intravenous lidocaine is interesting because, <clears throat> you know how we talk about fashion is cyclical? So IV lidocaine was something that we used in the 70s to treat pain, okay? And now it's coming back in vogue. And people are using intravenous lidocaine not just for chronic pain, but we're using it for uh, acute pain in the, in the hospitals, on the inpatient service. What's interesting about intravenous lidocaine is when you look at the studies, and this is, some of this bears out of post-surgical literature, and some of this bears out in chronic pain literature. So Simone Hartuni and I are doing some studies with diabetic neuropathy and, and, uh, and, central, and um, uh, light IV lidocaine. But we are finding, and you know how we talk about biomarkers for pain, you know, and somebody even talked about interleukins, right, cytokines? So it turns out that local anesthetics definitely make a dent in cytokines that have been shown as being involved 
in acute, the development of acute to chronic pain. Namely, IL-1 beta, IL-6, TNF-alpha, those are some of the big ones. And in fact, IL-10, which is shown to be protective, gets decreased in patients with chronic pain. And when you treat with IV lidocaine, it bursts up. It's kind of like that LDL-HDL balance, right? Protective and non-protective. So this is what's interesting about lidocaine, is that somehow it's altering the milieu, the cytokine milieu in the patients systemically, such that the effects of this might not necessarily be at just the moment. So in patients with chronic pain, we treat them with an intravenous lidocaine infusion in the clinic, and the effect can last for three, four, five, or six weeks. And there are patients who I have not been successful in treating these patients. We've tried everything, except they do get a response to lidocaine. And they'll even come and tell, and this is obviously something that we can't do all the time, but what we'll do is they'll even come and say, Dr. Boutrous, I'm, I'm going to go on vacation, and I just want to enjoy it with my family. So can, can we set up an IV lidocaine infusion like a week before? And we'll do that, and they'll get relief. They'll get amazing, significant relief. Their pain will go from a 10 to a 3, and they'll be able to enjoy it for at least three, four weeks before their pain starts to gradually come back. So that's something to think about. Ketamine is an interesting thing because also ketamine is getting a lot uh, hot topic these days because we're showing that ketamine can be used to treat depression, right? Um, it's interesting because how does ketamine work? It works on NMDA receptor antagonism, right? And so we like to think that ketamine is, is great because it could even potentially make a perturbation in, in uh, patients who have uh, opioid uh, tolerance. Am I running out of time? I have about 10 minutes. So that's something that we, we could potentially use in these patients. And then uh, propofol is not something that we like to use because obviously it's fraught with potential airway issues, right? But in the studies, it has shown, because it works on what mechanism? GABA-A. And it has been shown to be helpful in these patients, although we don't necessarily use this in most clinical uh, scenarios. Okay, I'm going to run through some of the stimulation. So there's neurostimulation. We can do motor cortex stimulation. We don't completely understand why this is happening, but we do know that there are changes in cerebral blood flow when we implant these motor cortical uh, implants. And so it drives increased blood flow to the thalamus, and it does improve pain. Two recent reviews, the one-year success rate is as much as 50%, which it, we might not necessarily think is great, but in fact, in this patient population where there's nothing else, is actually quite amazing in these patients. And the severe complications are rare, but the most common ones are at the time of implantation, they can get a seizure, or even right afterwards, so keep that in mind. They can get infection, of course, they can always have hardware problems. There's transcranial magnetic stimulation. Now, what's nice about transcranial magnetic stimulation is that it is not invasive. You do this, and in fact, um, we, we do say that the pain, is, the pain effects are often modest and short-lasting, but the literature will tell you that recurring sessions of repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation is additive, and in fact, they build on each other. And it can be used as a potential screening tool for patients that you're thinking of this motor cortex stimulation because if they respond to transcranial magnetic stimulation, they oftentimes do much better with implantation of a, mort uh, of a motor cortex stimulator. So keep that in mind. There's deep brain stimulators. Often we use this for Parkinson's patients, right? But these deep brain stimulators, in terms of their main targets, 
are the ventral posterior thalamus and the periventricular uh, gray. And now you'll know why, based on the mechanisms that we talked about. And they can range from 25 to 67%. And what's really weird is this vestibular caloric stimulation. Have you heard of this? <laughs> so it's what we think about when, like she said, you know, when we talk about vestibular dysfunction. But what's interesting is there's, and I'm talking about really small studies, like N of two, right? Okay. So, but, but it's interesting because in, an, in one study, it substantially relieved central post-stroke pain, just, just stimulating the, the um, vestibular uh, nerve. In another study of nine, there was significant immediate relief using cold water caloric stimulation. So this is an area that's now starting to get uh, of much interest in, in treating for these patients. So now that leaves us with this paper that I want to talk about. We did this little study at WashU. Simone Hartunian and I, we ended up wanting to see, okay, we all think that this is happening centrally and that, for a lack of better term, the floodgates are open, we can't control pain. But how much of this is coming from the periphery? So normally we would say, this isn't a, you know, this is a central phenomenon, all right? And, and targeting the actual arm that's painful or the leg that's painful should not produce any benefit, correct? Not if it, the, the stroke's in the brain. So why would targeting this do anything? So what we did is we screened 55 patients and 44 patients were excluded because of a variety of reasons that you can see here. 11 patients met the screening criteria. So this is a small pilot study. We were just curious. We wanted to know what was going on. Eight patients were included. And what we did is you can see some of the demographic data. And the reason why I'm going to go through this is because now that you've seen, now we've reviewed how these people can present, we can take a look at this data and see, does it match up with what we just talked about? So you can see that it's a mix of Caucasian and African-American patients who ranged anywhere from a young 37-year-old female all the way up to a 62-year-old male. And you can see the stroke locations based on imaging. Thalamus, thalamus, thalamus. You can also see that there were extrathalamic lesions, right? So basal ganglia, basal ganglia, basal ganglia. You can also see the internal capsule. It's not just the thalamus, so there is extrathalamic involvement. You can also see that these patients have had a long time since their stroke. So look at this, six years, seven years, even as short as though nine months. There's a wide variety. And you can also look at their stroke type. Ischemics were three out of the eight, if you include this one as four, because they had two strokes. But hemorrhagic strokes were also a significant number. Now, look at the pain onset of these patients. So look at this. These, two, these three numbers, patients one, two, and eight, had immediate onset after their stroke. But look at these other patients. Three to 12 months after stroke, these two were zero to one months after stroke. So again, the display of the variability that we talked about earlier. We also talked about how long they had pain. This, these two were more than five years. This was within a year. And this one was, again, two to five years. And you can look at the medications that they were on when they came in for the study. Gabapentin, gabapentin, Cymbalter, duloxetine, right? Antidepressant, SNRI. Gabapentin and acetaminophen. This one had tramadol. What's interesting about tramadol is that what is tramadol? It has a it's it's a it's a dirty drug, right? It's a combo of opioid receptor and SNRI, right? Which could be explaining why this was somewhat helpful. 
So what we did is we categorized these patients into, I'm going to show you the diagrams, where they had their pain. And we decided to block the periphery. So if they had upper extremity pain, we did a brachial plexus block under ultrasound, gave them lidocaine. And we were so uh, careful to try to exclude whether or not this was even a systemic effect, right? Didn't I just tell you that I could treat patients with IV lidocaine, right? So you know, somebody could argue and say, well, you just injected lidocaine. It could be a systemic effect. So we measured lidocaine levels, made sure that they were below the usual thresholds that people would describe for pain relief. And we also um, did quantitative sensory testing. We wanted to see, did their thresholds change? So we did the block. If they had leg pain, we would do a popliteal fossil block under ultrasound. If they had upper extremity pain, we'd do a brachial plexus block. Usually at the supraclavicular level, if it involved the hand, and if it involved the shoulder, we'd do an interscaling brachial plexus block. Single shot. And this is where they described their pain symptoms, these eight patients. So we mapped it out. All of these colors are representative of the types of sensory painful stimuli, whether it's cold and blue, or hot and red, or pinprick sensations and whatnot, okay? And then, this is what happened. These patients were reporting pain scores at baseline of zero to seven out of 10. And then 30 minutes after the block, seven out of the eight patients said there was zero out of 10. One patient said there were three. And what's interesting about that one patient is that he actually dropped to like a one out of 10, but then it came up to a three at 30 minutes. But what's interesting is, and this is why I say this is an intimate pain problem, is it was very humbling to be in the room when this happened because these patients had pain for so long and they had no relief. We blocked the periphery, which is crazy when you think about it, and their pain went away and they all started to cry. They were all crying in the room. Every single, this was obviously not, they were not all in the room at the same time, but they were all in, at obviously at different points. But, but every, almost every single patient cried when, when they reported their pain, when we were testing afterwards. So it was a very humbling experience to be in this presence when this was happening. So this was what happened with these patients afterwards. So they were, they were you know, reporting a six, seven, eight out of 10 pain. This one guy dropped to a one out of 10 within minutes, but then came back to a three out of 10 and stayed at a two out of 10 for several hours. We measured out to about eight hours. These patients dropped to a, a, basically a zero out of 10 for almost everyone, and then slowly started gradually coming back up as the lidocaine was being absorbed and metabolized by the liver. And we measured all these different uh, types of pain modalities, right? We measured cold, sensory to cold. They were rating at a seven out of 10, zero. Heat was a six, round of half out of 10. Brush pain, just, just brushing the extremity. 4.5 went down to one, and pinprick also down to one. And these were really significant deviations from what they were describing. Now again, I understand it's an eight out of 10. This is a pilot study, so I understand that it's limited. But I'm just, what I'm trying to do is, I'm trying to plant the seeds that this isn't exactly what we thought central post-stroke pain is, right? And so I told you that we measured plasma lidocaine. Turns out that the majority of patients were below systemic lidocaine uh, alleviation of pain. One patient exhibited a crossing over that threshold, 
But what's interesting about that one patient is that patient had pain in other areas of the body, but those weren't alleviated by the block. So we can't, even though he crossed over into this area, it clearly wasn't a systemic, or I should say it wasn't clearly, but it doesn't appear to be a systemic lidocaine effect because his other areas that were painful were not helped by the block. So <clears throat> what's interesting about this is it's telling us that the pain might not, not be entirely generated in the central nervous system. That, in fact, there needs to be this talk between the central nervous system and the afferent sensory input coming in from the periphery that's playing a role in maintaining the spontaneous pain that's happening in this patient population. And that it, it's plausible that sensory neurons in the central nervous system are damaged by the stroke, that they become sensitized. They're shifted to the left. Okay? And that if you block the afferent stimulus to those sensitized neurons, that it'll decrease the, the action potentials that are, that are being exhibited by these affected um, central nervous systems. And that um, what's interesting, like I said, about the local afferent block is that, in, that no changes in pain intensity occurred in the ipsilateral painful extremity in the patient that had that systemic, that had the uh, increased level. So central post-stroke pain has a variable time to onset after stroke. Most cases of central post-stroke pain can be thalamic, but they're actually extrathalamic. Amitriptyline is your first line of drug choice. If amitriptyline fails, try lamotrigine. If that fails, you can even consider short-term relief with IV lidocaine or ketamine, not necessarily propofol. Consider the implantables, right, motor cortex or deep brain. You can use transcranial magnetic stimulation as a, a potential uh, threshold for these two. <coughs> But that sensory afferent input may be playing an important role in maintaining the nociceptive input in these patients. So what's interesting is that based off of this pilot study, we're in the process of applying uh, for the NIH grant for um, the use of spinal cord stimulation. Because this is interesting, right? So you don't want to think about spinal cord stimulation in the treatment of central nervous pain, right? This is weird. You don't, like, people don't look at this. But the idea is, if I can block the afferent input by the stimulation that's occurring, and we measure by ballistics uh, off of this, what happens to that afferent input? Can we, in fact, block it and, in fact, treat central nervous pain, central uh, post-stroke pain, excuse me, or neuropathic pain syndromes with something that's not central? All right. Hopefully this was a benefit to everyone, and thanks for your time. I'll uh, entertain questions. The question is specifically about the geriatric population and how they respond to um, these side effects of these medications. And the answer is yes, you need to be very careful about this patient population. No study has been specific looking at the elderly in this. Because again, central post-stroke pain as a phenomenon is a very 
concentrated core group of patients. And so nobody's specifically looked at the geriatric portion of these population. Um, however, uh, what we do talk about is whenever we use these medications for patients, even outside of central post-stroke pain, that we have to be careful with the side effect profile, which is why we start low and we titrate up, which is what we were talking about earlier. So. Uh, That's a good point. Good. Yes? Have you thought about doing a, uh, like a continuous brachial pressure shock for like two days, like you do with shoulders, and see if that has a three-day effect rather than a short action? It's interesting. Uh, so the question is whether or not doing a continuous brachial plexus catheter, um, so for example, like what we do in, the, in surgical patients, if it could potentially cause longer relief of pain. And we haven't entertained that. And the only reason why is because um, we're trying to find sustainable you know, treatment algorithm. So it could potentially make it longer, but then the question is, okay, that's great. <sighs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, mean, I worked. I worked for the NHP pain service, so we did these blocks all the time. Right. Um, and you know, I just think I just think it's, it's such a cool idea. But you're right. And then what? So it works, and you're like, all right, everybody. Okay. Oh, I can't do that anymore. Right. Yes. What about the anti-inflammatory effects achieved with low-dose Excellent question. So. <clears throat> Questions about low-dose naltrexone and anti-inflammatory effects. Low-dose naltrexone has been shown as a glial cell modifier, and it, in fact, can cause good effects in terms of reduction of um, neuropathic inflammation. Um, nobody has looked at low-dose naltrexone specifically in central post-stroke pain. It's an interesting question because people have looked at low-dose naltrexone for multiple sclerosis, and it has been shown to be beneficial obviously also for CRPS. That's a mainstay for our patients with complex regional pain. So that's my next talk. So, um, but nobody has been specific enough to, to investigate that. It's a good question. Thank you. So it's a good question. They talk about the functional limitations of these patients. So I didn't get into that with, in, in the slides, but if you look at the paper, they'll find that actually most of them had good function. And this was, this was not limited to the other reasons why people can have pain after a stroke. We, so we've excluded that. Exactly. It's pure central. And that's why it's so difficult to study this condition, right? Because there are so many other reasons why people can have pain after a stroke. And that's why we were limited... To, we were very specific in our inclusion criteria, and that's why we screened 55 patients and only got down to eight. And so they actually had good function, but they had this unrelenting, lancinating, uh, neuropathic pain that they just couldn't get rid of. So it's a great question. Did you, did you ever do a study? I mean, they didn't do any break your plexus blocks and 
It's a good, it's what? What's interesting is that with sympathetic blocks, so for example, we'll use CRPS. Not everybody responds to a steroid ganglion block, but we would always think that, okay, well, CRPS has got to be sympathetic. That's not necessarily true. And so that's why, again, it's a phenomenon of what are we dealing with and what's the correct taxonomy. And we have to be very restrictive with the patients that we're, that we're dealing with. So you're absolutely right. And this is just a, a different way of looking at it. There's one study that came out that was not a good study at all. It was published 10 years ago. And if you look at their inclusion-exclusion criteria, it could be a wide variety of things that is not. That's exactly why we went through um, the, all the types of different pain syndromes that can be in this patient population. And so their study didn't show any benefit, but that's because there was a lot of flaws in that study. Yes. So I'm going to take a step back because the question is, have we looked at peripheral stimulation? We haven't even done the spinal cord stimulation yet, right? This is proof of concept. So you're absolutely right. It could work from a peripheral stimulation perspective. However, even in patients who have a peripheral lesion, right, and you implant a peripheral nerve stimulator, how often do these peripheral nerve stimulators exhibit or exert benefit three or four years later? Even in those patients, probably not, right? More often than not, I see patients come back two, three years later saying it didn't help or it stopped helping. And that's because my idea is, think about it, you're, you're stimulating at a constant rate the same thing, and you're not even, you're not even looking, you're, you're stimulating an axon out in the periphery, right? You're not even next to the dorsal root ganglion where you can actually do some, some form of neuromodulation or at the spinal cord level that's uh, changing you know, the, uh, the dorsal horn, right? So, so that's why I have reservations about peripheral nerve stimulation because of my experience and also because of the literature, because a lot of this will say, yeah, it's great at six months or a year. What happens at three or four years? You know what I'm saying? And I think most patients, who, most physicians or healthcare practitioners who take care of those patients will tell you that they tend to lose efficacy at that time. Just like any kind of medication, you start developing what? A tolerance to it, right? Opioids and whatnot. It, it's something that we see. I don't, out of respect for whoever's going to be giving the next talk, I, I'm happy to entertain questions outside if anybody does, but thank you for your time.